Well, it looks like someone of normal height used this lectin last, and now I have to shorten it in front of everybody, <laughs> like this. Yeah, there we go. Thanks, guys. Well, we all, um, we all like a good story about change, don't we? A good story about change. Uh, most of our reality TV shows are about change, so uh, what's an example? Like The Bachelor? Yeah. Oh, no, I did not want to woo. I did not. That was Caitlin. That was definitely Caitlin. Like the bachelor, the bachelorette, it's a story about change, right? Someone comes in and they're annoying and a bit obnoxious and they're single and they leave and they're annoying and they're obnoxious, but they're not single. You're like, oh, that's nice. They change unless you're the honey badger, in which case nothing changes, like absolutely nothing because you just rig the system, all right? Um, um, I remember like when I, was in, when I was in primary school, do you know what the, like, the cool TV show to watch when you're in primary school was back in my day? The Biggest Loser. It, no, it was, it was a big deal. It was a big deal. It would be like you would come in the next day and you'd be like, dude, did you see that episode? And they'd be like, he didn't eat the donut. And you're like, yeah, he didn't eat the donut. And it's just the best. I think like here's a couple of pictures from a couple of the um, biggest loser seasons I watch. I can't remember the dude's name on the left. We'll call him Jives, Jives. but that guy's name was Bill and Bill was epic. He was a cool dude. Uh, the show was all about change, right? Epic transformations. Is, it is everyone else hearing this, like, woo sound from this? I'm getting some funky vibes, Jared. I'll let you sort out the funky vibes from up there. Jared, the funky vibe technician. But those, those type of stories, right, they're, they're pretty inspirational. We like those inspirational stories of change. And, and the Christian life is all about change. All about change. Um, and these changes that, are, that occur in people when they become Christians, right, they're evidences that someone has become a Christian. They're evidence. And so if you can see them in someone, you see that all this change has occurred, you can go, yeah, looks like you're on the right track, killing it. And if you can't see them, you go, well, I'm a bit concerned about that. There's something not quite right. Which means, if you take that step further, it means you can get the Christian life right and you can get it wrong. It's possible to be going in the right direction, and it's possible to be going in the wrong direction. So some people here might be killing it. You might be killing it. Lots of change and good change. But some of you might not be. And you'd want to, you want to be able to know what changes to look out for to know which one you are. And so being able to answer the question of what change we should be looking for is actually really important. And if you're here with us and you're new, we just want to say big, big g'day, stoked that you're here, hope you have a good time, and I hope you have a bit of a listen along as well, because I reckon this is still a, an important thing for you, because if you can get what is the change that's supposed to happen in someone after they become a Christian, you'll be able to see what being a Christian is like. And I think that's really important, because you'll hear a bunch of different explanations about that from, I don't know, TV social media, all, all that type of stuff. But this will allow you to just hear it from the Bible itself. What's the Christian life supposed to look like? And we're going to be dealing with all these questions by kind of digging into 1 Thessalonians, new book for the term. I'm excited, right? But before we kind of dig into chapter 1 that Nick just read for us and get into the details, I reckon it's important to get our heads around why, like what's going on, all right? Who wrote it? Why'd they write it? Who'd they write it to? Where is this happening? All that type of stuff. And you get some of those answers in the very first verse, yeah? So it says right there that it's Paul, Silas, and Timothy. 
and it's written to the church of the Thessalonians. So we get, it's written by Paul, Silas and Timothy, to the church in a place called Thessalonica. Thessalonica, right? Now, a bunch of you would have heard of Paul before. He's a pretty, pretty big dude in the Bible. He wrote heaps of the New Testament, all right? New Testament's kind of Paul's handiwork. And you hear heaps about Paul in the book of Acts, all right? So if you've got a Bible with you, start flicking to the book of Acts. We're going to get there in a second. Um, but when we're introduced to Paul in the book of Acts, right, he is a bad dude, right? He's just walking around, killing Christians, chucking them in jail, just generally being a not nice guy. Uh, but then he becomes a Christian. Paul becomes a Christian. He meets the risen Jesus, the guy that he's been saying was a nobody. He meets him, risen to life, and he becomes a Christian himself. And Jesus gives Paul the task of spreading the gospel about Jesus to the rest of the world. And so that's Paul's gig for the rest of his life, spreading the news about Jesus. And that's exactly what Paul sets out to do. So if you can see this map here, right, Paul kind of starts off across on the right in Syria, in Antioch, and the trip we're kind of talking about, he goes up, up into Sicilia, I don't know what that is, right? He goes up into Asia, then he comes across again, up into the top left, is in Philippi, and you see Thessalonica right near there, all right? That's what Paul's doing. He wakes his way west all the way to Macedonia, which is like that yellow region where all those cities are in. Uh, and he makes his way to Thessalonica, which is like capital city, largest city in Macedonia. It was a, it was a cranking place. And we get told about his visit there in Acts chapter 17. So I told you to flick to Acts, jump into Acts chapter 17. And this is the historical account of Paul rocking up into Thessalonica. All right? And as we read this, the first thing we're going to see is that the start of the Thessalonian church was hectic. It was just a hectic time. So Acts chapter 17, verse 1. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they didn't find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the officials were thrown into turmoil. All right, so there's the story and the historical account of Paul rocking up into Thessalonica with his crew. And the first thing he does, he gets there, and where does he go straight away? Straight to the synagogue, and he preaches the gospel, right? So synagogue, place where the Jews were hanging out at the time. And when he did that, did you notice what happened? Heaps of people believed in Jesus, right? There was a chunk of Jews, there was a a chunk of God-fearing Greeks, some prominent women, whatever that is, right? But a bunch of people, a bunch of people came and believed in Jesus because of that. Um, but a chunk of the other Jews, you would have noticed, 
not so stoked. Not so stoked about what's happening there. And they, they go and they grab what I reckon is one of the like funniest descriptions in the Bible ever. In verse 5, the other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. You can probably picture what, what that might have looked like. I don't know. That's pretty. You know, like in Harry Potter, right? You've got, um, what's it called? Like Diagon Alley. And you're like, you go and you buy your wand and you buy your owl and your other stationary needs for school. And then there's like the, the weird place. What's that called? Nocturne Alley. Yes, there's the weird dodgy spot. I imagine that that's kind of like where they went. They went into the market, then they went to like the dodgy part of the market, and there's just all these weirdos there, and they just round them up, and long story short, they start a riot, as you do, normal Friday night fun, and they just kick Paul out. Paul and co. just get kicked out of the city, because these other Jews are just not stoked that he's there uh, at all. And then, and then you'll notice, as we kind of go on, verse 10 onwards, that Paul goes, all right, I'm going to go to Berea. I'm get kicked out of this town, I'm going to move on. And Berea was just a little bit west of Thessalonica. So come with me to verse 13. So he goes away to Berea, he does the same thing, preaches the gospel there. But then verse 13. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. Uh, the believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, uh, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. And so they, they literally, they kick him out of their town. They're not having a bar of it. And Paul's like, well, I'm probably going to leave then. And he leaves. And then they follow him to that town, just like a crazy mob of Simpsons pitchforkers or something, like just absolutely absolute mob, follow them to Berea and kick him out there. So Paul's got a pretty bad gig. But I reckon that that kind of account of what happened teaches us two things that are really important to know before we get into the letter of 1 Thessalonians, and they're this. The first one is that Paul didn't spend very long in Thessalonica, right? Did you notice that? It could be as short as like a month, maybe a couple of months, like he's just not there for long before they kick him out. He preaches the gospel, he kind of establishes church for them, and then he gets booted and he has to leave and just hope things are going good. And that's like, that shows us, I reckon, the second thing as well, is that this place doesn't sound like an easy place to change your life, does it? It doesn't sound like this is an easy place to be a Christian in, right? Like, the guy who brought Christianity there got booted out. This does not sound like a good gig. It sounds like a tough place to be a Christian. And that's because it's hard to think differently, it's really hard to think. Think about the Jews there, right? Um, so the, the, the Jewish people who became Christians, they've gone from thinking that Jesus was this heretic, this guy who's just dead, who said he was God but wasn't, and there's this huge change in their thinking. That guy was God. He's the, he's the king that the Bible's told me all about. But the rest of the Jews, not so happy, starting riots, being crazy. There's a dangerous change that they make. But it really couldn't have been easy. It's a hard environment to change in. And it was really hard to live differently as well, right? Because you, you would have noticed that it, it mentioned different groups of people who believed in Paul's teaching. That God-fearing Greeks, there would have been a bunch of different people. Now, Thessalonica, right, it's this like trade route city. 
It's a big city, heaps of different type of people in there, lots of religions in there, lots of different thoughts and ideas in there. And, and whoever wasn't a Jew becoming a Christian in that context, right, they're different to everyone else. They're leaving their idol worship, their, all their other practices. And so it's hard to think different in there, and it's really hard to live different. And both of them show that, man, Thessalonica would have been a hard place to become a Christian in, right? And with that in mind, it makes sense, I reckon, why Paul decides to write to them. Because you've got to think, like, why did Paul bother writing this letter? It's a pretty long letter. I've never written a letter this long in my life, right? But he, he wasn't there for long, and it's a really hard place. And so for him, he's not able to just go up to him and go, man, you guys are killing it, keep going. Or you guys need to sort this out or else it's going to get you. He wasn't able to do that to, to their face. He got kicked out. So he writes this letter. He writes 1 Thessalonians. And if you can kind of remember some of that as we dig in it, I reckon 1 Thessalonians will make heaps more sense. Because you'll hear like how they receive the gospel in persecution. And you'll go, yes, I remember hearing about that, Acts 17. Or you'll hear about you know, Paul being stoked about how they're going. And you go, well, it makes sense, right? It's a really hard place. Paul had to bail quickly. And so I reckon we'll make 1 Thessalonians make heaps more sense for us. And what you'll find as we go through 1 Thessalonians is that it's kind of like, it's a halftime pep talk. Who here plays like a team sport? Team sport? Surprisingly few. You guys should go play a team sport. You can join my team. I'm not in one. We'll make one. It'll be good. But like halftime in team sports, all right? Maybe some individual sports, I don't know. But halftime is pep talk time, all right? And there's two different types of pep talks, depending on how you're going in the game and who your coach is, right? The first one, it's not a nice one, all right? It's like a firing range. Your team is playing terribly, and your coach is going to tell you about it. I don't know if you've seen this, right? But the Wallabies were getting absolutely pumped, and they were playing disgusting Rugby, all right? And there's this, this video, no audio, but it's just Checker, the coach, just flying at him. He's just like grabbing players here. It's, it's crazy, right? And it's because they suck. They really sucked, but they won, so that's nice. But I assume what he was saying was, you guys suck. If you're going to win, you can't suck. So stop sucking so much. I assume that's what that pep talk was, right? But that, that's, the, that's the stop sucking pep talk. That's the first one. And the second one... The second type is uh, the type I imagine that the All Blacks get every game or like the Golden State Warriors or any team who's just too good. I reckon I could do that, that pep talk. It's just, you guys are really good. Um, just keep doing that because you're pretty good. Maybe tweak this, but essentially keep destroying them. <laughs> good job. And that is, that is the pep talk that Paul has given. Paul has given the Thessalonians this pep talk going, you guys are crushing it. You guys are, you guys are killing it. I've seen this change in you and it's epic. And there's two ways that they've changed. So flick back to 1 Thessalonians. The two big ways have changed. The, the first one is that they now think differently. They thought differently. So as you flick in there, come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. Verse 4, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, 
that he has chosen you. Now stop there for a second. My first reaction when I read that, right, I go, how can Paul know that? How can Paul be so confident that they're chosen by God and loved by God? Well, he tells you in the next verse, right? Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. And so the first thing you're going to see is that the gospel did come to them. And we saw that in Acts 17, remember? This is how Acts 17 explained it. Uh, I'll read it for you again. So, so Paul went to the synagogue, reasoning with them from the Scriptures, from the Bible, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. And so Paul brings the gospel, the message that Jesus is the King. Jesus is God. And that same Jesus is the one that those people had seen, or that people had seen, dying on a cross, taking on the penalty that their sin deserved, and then rising to life again. That's the gospel. And it's come to them, and they've not only heard it, but they've received it. They've believed it, and it's changed their thinking. And the result of that change in their thinking is verse 10. Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. That's a really important sentence. If you're an underliner, you can underline that, right? Because people have, and they will continue, to try and say that the death of Jesus was for a bunch of reasons, right? People who call themselves Christians, even, will say that the death of Jesus was for a bunch of different things. Some just say, you know, it was a sad moment. Some say it's a moment that just should inspire us to go and live for other people like he did. Some will say it's a, uh, he died as an example for us so that we might go and live better and be better in God's eyes. But that's not what the death of Jesus was for. What was it for? That he would stand in our place, taking on the rebellion against God that we'd done so that God's wrath, his anger at us would be directed to Jesus instead. That's what Jesus' death accomplished. That's the gospel, and that's what all of Christianity is about. And when that gospel was preached in Thessalonica, right, it was preached with the Holy Spirit. We're back up in verse 5 now. Now, I reckon when we hear that, sometimes we freak out a little bit, and we're like, I don't know what that means. Maybe was there crazy miracles happening? Was he speaking weird? It just means that the Spirit of God was there, making the preaching of that gospel effective, the Spirit was making it effective. Because the, the words that Paul spoke were from the Spirit. Paul spoke with the conviction, the, the confidence given by the Spirit. And when, when the gospel came to them, these guys received it and believed it because of the work of the Spirit. And you see that in verse 6, right? You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And that tells us something huge, right? We contribute nothing to our salvation. Nothing. God is the one who orchestrated the gospel of your salvation. He's the one who died on our behalf to achieve our salvation. He's the one who spreads the gospel that came to you that brings salvation. And he's the one who works in you by his spirit so that you receive the gospel and have that salvation. 
Now, who is the key piece throughout all of that? It's God. God is the one who works through his spirit to save us. We contribute nothing. And when we understand that, right, when we really get that, that I contribute nothing to my salvation, I reckon there's two things that change. There's a bunch, but here's two that I was thinking. The first is we should have this overwhelming sense of thankfulness to God. Sense of thankfulness. When you realise that you've got nothing to do with your salvation, you, you kind of don't have a choice but to be thankful, right? You have to be thankful to God. You shouldn't feel lucky to be saved. You should feel thankful that you're saved. Because imagine you're, I don't know, you're out in the middle of the ocean and you're drowning, all right? I would definitely drown in the middle of the ocean. I'm a terrible swimmer. But you're fighting for your life and eventually you just black out. You've gone under. But a while later you wake up and you're on the shore and you go, man, I'm so lucky to be alive. I'm so lucky. But what you don't realise is how you got there. And how you got there is some dude's seen you out in the water. He's like built a boat. He's really quick at building boats, all right? He's, he's built a boat. He's paddled out there like this in the boat. It's a small boat. He paddles out there. He sees you going down. So he has to jump in. He's pushed you onto the boat. He's died in the process and he's somehow pushed you back to shore. It's a really fortunate situation, right? But, but you wake up and you go, man, I'm so lucky. So lucky to be alive. How fortunate. The guy did everything. You're not lucky. You shouldn't feel lucky that that's happened. You should feel thankful. Your feeling changes from luck to thankfulness because that guy saved you at great cost and he's done it all. We should be thankful. And the second thing that should happen is, is this prayerfulness that comes from us, particularly as we tell people about Jesus. We should be prayerful. Because when you're telling your friends about Jesus or you're, I don't know, some of you are teaching EV kids and that type of thing, what's your first instinct of something to do? Mine is often, how can I do this thing? And it's rarely asking God that he would do it. But when you understand that, man, we need God's spirit to work for the gospel to go out, our first instinct should always be prayer. Should always be asking God that He would do that work in people. Because you could give the most epic I don't know, presentation of the gospel anyone's ever heard, right? But if God doesn't work by His Spirit in that, it will result in nothing. So pray. So the change Paul saw in the Thessalonians was that they got the gospel and it changed their thinking. But there is another huge change. And it didn't just change their thinking. They didn't just think differently. They lived differently. And we see that in verse 6 again. Check out verse 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with joy given by the Holy Spirit. You see, they become imitators. We talked about this thing last term, it was, or something, or maybe the term before in 1 Corinthians, right, about this imitation. But they've become like Paul. And, and then more than that, they've become like Jesus more. And they've done that. There's been such a change in how they've lived that that news has just spread everywhere, right? Um, and, and so verse 7, And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. 
It's become known everywhere. That's a pretty big deal, right? Like there might, I don't know, there might be someone in your school who's known across the school for this one thing. Or people spend their whole life being trying to be famous and trying to be known a bit. But these guys' faith, their change, had become known everywhere, Paul says. And he's been travelling a while. You remember that map from before? He's been moving around. And he's still hearing about the change that have occurred in these guys. So what was it? Was it just, oh, these guys now think differently and that's gone across and people have heard about it? No, there's there's the change in the way they live, not just a change in the way they think. Check it out in verse, end of verse 8. Therefore, we don't need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell, check this out, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. See, for the Thessalonians, right, getting the gospel and changing their thinking turned their whole life around. Their whole life. Some of the new believers worshipping idols in whatever religion they were doing, right? They'd been worshipping fake gods around the place. They would have been some of the Greeks we were talking about earlier, but now they've stopped. That's a change. But they haven't just stopped worshipping the fake idols. They've started worshipping the true God. They've, they didn't just stop worshipping fake gods. They've started worshipping the living and the true God. And even now, every person who becomes a Christian has done the exact same thing. Everyone who becomes a Christian is turning away from idols to serve the living and true God. It just happens that our idols look heaps different. All right? Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of idols. I think of like little carved wooden monkeys or something. I don't know. And so we, we don't often see people worshipping them around us and then changing and, and turning and following God. But when you become a Christian, you make a decision to stop living the way you had been and to start living for Jesus. And our society has heaps of idols. It's got heaps. And it tells us to worship them all the time. That's what our society is all about. I reckon the biggest idol that our society tells us to worship is pleasure. The idol of pleasure. Doing whatever makes you happy. Doing whatever feels right. Doing whatever feels good. Doing whatever you need to do to have the easy life. You know, get, um, get whatever job you need that will make you happy. Or get whatever job you need to make the most money so you can do whatever you want. You know, make sure you've got a good reputation online. You've got plenty of followers, a lot of likes, only posting the good stuff. Because that way other people think you're good and you feel good about it. It's linked with pleasure. You know, um, you know go, go and take the drugs you want. Go and drink as much as you want. Go and sleep around. Go and do whatever you want. Whatever makes you feel good. Just go do that. It's all about Pleasure. And our society wakes up daily and bows down to the idol of pleasure. But the message of the Bible is you've got to stop it. You no longer, if you're a Christian, bow down to the idol of pleasure, or any for that matter. You, just, you can't just do whatever you want anymore. There's a change. You now worship and serve the living and true God. Verse 9. Are you still serving idols? If so, 
What are they? Because when you're doing these things, it's not just doing bad stuff. I'm not talking about doing bad stuff, right? You're worshipping a fake God. You're worshipping a God that isn't the true and living God who made you and gave you everything you have. It's worship. And you cannot properly understand the gospel without it changing your life. You cannot properly understand the gospel without it changing your entire life. Because the gospel is life-changing in what it does, right? As Paul spreads it, every town it goes to, there's change. Huge change. And so if someone were to look at you, can they see the changes that have occurred since you've become a Christian? Are there differences from what you once were to what you are now? Are there big differences? Are you living differently? If the answer to that question is yes, then that's the, that's chances are that's the Spirit and that's evidence working in your life to show that you've properly understood the gospel and are saved, right? But if the answer to that question is no, chances are you haven't received the gospel because the gospel never comes without change. You cannot properly understand the gospel without it changing your life. You know, people, um, people live the things they love. People live the things they love. When you, um, you, know you're, you know you're starting to get old when you start talking about what TV shows you like, but I'll do it anyway, right? One of my favourite TV shows at the moment is called Amazing Interiors. It's on Netflix. You can, uh, you can check it out. And it's all about people who have uh, cool or weird insides of their houses. Not outsides, it's only interior. The other series is... Amazing exteriors. Less exciting. All right. But it's all about these crazy houses that are super weird, right? So this guy's a huge hockey fan. And so his whole house looks like this. Every bit of his floor is made from hockey sticks. He's made his own floorboards of it. He's got a hockey rink, yard. Feel? I don't know. He's got a hockey thing in the backyard, right? He loves it. And he, whenever they say, like, I've spent this much, it's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars on the thing. Or the next guy? Now, nailed it. This guy, uh, his whole house is consumed with cat stuff. All right? So you see those things, like, up on the top, not the spiral, but the other stuff? They're like walkways and tunnels that go through his whole house for his 22 cats. One cat sucks. 22 really sucks. All right? But his whole house is built around his cat. He tells a story about he, like, one time the cat accidentally knocked the bath tap and it did like $40,000 worth of damage or something. But his whole house looks like this. These people have built their whole house solely around the thing they love. The hockey guy. Some guy has all this horror stuff in his house and it looks like a haunted house. You've got the crazy cat man or whatever. It's obvious by looking at their house exactly what they're on about and what they love. When people look at you, what would they say that you love? Is it Jesus? Or is it something else? It's funny, I reckon. Other, other people often 
often see us better than we see ourselves. One of the best ways to see if that change has occurred in your life is to ask someone you trust. Because you can kid yourselves a lot. Like, I can kid myself a lot that I'm changing for the better and I'm not. Ask someone you trust. Go, hey, how does my life actually look from the outside? If you were to look in, what does it look like I love? Can you see this change in my life? And some of you, I reckon, are thinking, I don't have someone that I would ask to do that. I can't think of someone. Find someone. Do it tonight. Go up to a friend and ask them to be that person for you. Because if you don't find it now, if you don't find that person now, it's going to get harder. But I reckon that is a great way to grow and a great way to change. Just have someone going, dude, you're stuffing up there. You've got to fix that. Dude, you're killing it there. How encouraging. So find someone to do it. Because the gospel always comes with change. You cannot properly understand the gospel without it changing your life. I'm really excited for the rest of 1 Thessalonians. Paul's big halftime pep talk to them. And I trust God's going to use it to grow us and change us to make us more like Jesus. Why don't I pray that that would be the case? God, we want to thank you for your goodness to us. We want to thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. We want to thank you for the gospel that you've given us, the gospel of salvation, of Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. We want to thank you for the work of your spirit who worked to bring the gospel to us and works even in us to have us receive that gospel. And not just that, you don't just leave us after that, but you change us and you make us more and more like Jesus. Lord, we pray that that would be the case among us. Pray that you would make uh, Eva Youth, all of us, uh, people who are always growing. Uh, We pray that people will be able to see an epic change in our lives, how we've turned to worship you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Sing.